My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of Let Nothing Move You. I am really happy to be continuing through this series in Luke. We're almost done with it. Uh, I have some a little bit of news. Like I may have a guest coming up soon that's still in discussions uh, on whether or not he, his schedule and mine align, and I may end up on his podcast as well, is not associated with Anazal Ministries or any of the other ones I can think of you would probably know of, but I'm looking forward to it if that uh, comes through. So uh, spoilers maybe for that, or I may have said something that is never going to happen. So who knows? But today we're going to be heading into the book of Luke. We'll be in chapter 19, starting in verses 1 through 10, because I am in a little bit of a rush today. I have to do uh, this recording. I I did a meeting earlier today and a podcast recorded before this, and I have a whole one shot we're doing for systematic right after I'm done with this one. So I'm going to uh, hopefully get through this, not uh, rushing completely and ignoring things, but just getting stuff done. So before I keep rambling, let's just go verses 1 through 10 in chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he is also a, he since he also is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This story, this bit of history, is what the entire Bible is about. Someone who is about as far away from God as possible saw his need for repentance, sought it out, and then he has an encounter with Jesus that changes his life for the better. We should all have immense joy in our hearts when we see the people around us experience this exact same thing. Because guess what? If uh, you're really working with them, you're going to remember we were there at one point in our own lives as well. And there's nothing better in this world than seeing someone come to faith and join the flock. Look, Zacchaeus, we see here, was another tax collector. One who took advantage of the people under his control, thanks to his job. We had talked about uh, Matthew slash you know Levi earlier, and all the politics who went with that. Like by the culture of the time, he had every right to do what he was doing. But guess what? Culture never has the same standing as the Word of God does. It doesn't matter if that culture is American, if it's Russian, if it's Chinese, if it's anything that isn't God and what he has commanded, it's second to his words and laws that reign supreme. We see here Zacchaeus, even in the midst of his sin, even in the midst of this cultural uh, okay situation he thinks he can do and, and act in, he recognized this and sought something better for himself. 
even if it meant leaving the leisure of his old life behind. God demands the same of us when we come to faith. He doesn't want half-hearted and lukewarm Christians to come into the midst of his church because they aren't all in and proclaiming him as they should be. Here's a a verse you don't hear preached that often. It comes from Revelation. It'll be in uh, 3, 15 through 16. This is the NIV translation. And it says, uh, this is Jesus speaking to one of the churches there. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. This is one of the most scathing confrontations Jesus has with a member of the church or members of a church. And I don't know about you, but I never want to hear Jesus say that about me. Like, it'd be better for me if I was a sinner and away from him because at least I was confirming my choices. A lukewarm Christian brings nothing to the table. They claim Christ, yet they remain in their sin, or they pretend their sin is okay, or they're pointing at others and saying, look at them, they're worse than me. That helps exactly no one. I never want to be the person Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you are worthless to my mission, to my kingdom. I want to be on fire. I mean, this is Jesus essentially saying, if you're going to do wrong, (laughs) do wrong right in the sense of at least be honest that you want to stay in the world. At least be honest that you don't care about what I have to say. But there are plenty of Christians around us who uh, maybe they even have faith in him. But you'll never know it from their lives. You'll never know it from what they do. But let's go back to Zacchaeus. Notice that out of all the people there, Jesus specifically chose him, even though there were plenty of sinners amongst the group. I mean, you can see that from the way they're handling Zacchaeus. It's like, oh, screw you, a tiny little man, and a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And you have to go on the sycamore tree. And yet Zacchaeus seems to be the only one there who understood why Jesus was there in the first place, or at least he had enough of a mind to consider such matters. which causes the other people there who didn't get picked to grumble and complain. And in effect, like revealing what a waste of time it would have been for Jesus to go to their homes instead. I mean, like we see that in action here. Like they claim, oh, Jesus is here. Let's go meet him. Come to my house. It's like, you just want the accolades of saying Jesus was at my house. You just want the fame. You just want the glory. You don't care about Jesus's ministry. And he spits them out in a sense by ignoring them and going to Zacchaeus instead. But also see here, Zacchaeus doesn't just remain in his initial stage of salvation. Zacchaeus has come to faith. Jesus says so himself. Like today, salvation has come to this house for he is also he he also is the son of Abraham. This is also a slam against the Jewish people outside who ignored Jesus's teachings and said that they were sons of Abraham. When in effect, there were more sons of Satan in that regard. Zacchaeus, a son of Abraham, spiritually and physically, has come to faith, but he didn't stay there. He sees who he used to be, despises this part of himself, and then decides to do something about it because he no longer wants to allow the past to have a hold on him anymore. So he distributes what he stole, and he gives it back fourfold. This is the power of the gospel. Humans 
we can have some semblance of why it's important to be charitable and loving. Like, sure, you can say, oh, well, it's just better for everyone if we just get along. Yeah, sure, that's true. That's not why we should do it. Because God commands it. God is love. God wants us to do the same things he would do for us. But it's only the special revelation that we have with Jesus that can reveal the importance of why we need to do them as they help others and give God the glory for allowing this situation to occur. Zacchaeus gets it. And you know what? Zacchaeus was just a man. He was going to sin later on. He was going to screw up. Guess what? Didn't lose his salvation. Nothing was taken away from him in that regard. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, Zacchaeus, you were on such a good streak. Ah, but man, uh, you coveted the other day. Going to have to let you go, buddy. Like, no. Zacchaeus's journey continues beyond what we see in Scripture. And if Jesus is, is calling his salvation into unquestionable knowledge, I think he did a good enough job to where he's being praised even all these thousands of years later. So we'll move on from there to verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to them, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And a second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? At my upcoming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Very cheery passage. <laughs> now, uh, for the sake of your knowledge and mine, Aemina, if that is indeed how it's pronounced, is about three months wages for a typical day laborer of the time. So you see just how much, how important this would have been to the man had he been able to receive more to servants doing their jobs. What we also see here is a powerful bit of encouragement and condemnation to the actions that Christians can take in their individual walks. The nobleman, obviously, he represents Jesus, who is about to leave the earth to ascend to heaven and is leaving us behind as his representatives on earth. He has gifted us all with talents and gifts that he expects us all to choose to use wisely. Just like a boss should be able to trust his employees to do the work they train them to do without looking over their shoulders, without micromanaging. I'm not pointing that as anyone I've ever had as a boss before. Not all of my bosses, mind you, but some. Look, just like they're not supposed to be doing that all day long, so too is the same for how God views his relationship with us. His job is not to step over your shoulder and go, oh, oh, are you, uh, you uh, witnessing new people? You uh, 
you, uh, you give it to the poor? It's like, no, that's not what God does. He shouldn't have to do that because we should be doing our jobs. He trained us. He gave us righteousness. He gave us salvation. We should do those things. Guess what? To those of us who have received him in our hearts, we should seek out training and equip ourselves well to do his good work in the world. That initial salvation is great, but there's still more. We have to learn how to do this correctly. Then we do it. Not because we're afraid that if we slack off, God will be mad at us, but because it is the righteous and just thing to do. Also here, this is not just a parable about evangelism, although it is obviously a very crucial part of it. That's one of the clear outlines here of what Jesus is making is that we're going to be more disciples made if you invest in them, if you talk to people. I've entrusted these people with you. How many of them did you bring to faith? Look, without a desire to multiply our numbers, Christianity would not be where it is now. There are uh, about two billion-ish people who claim Christ. Now, whether that's actually true, I don't know. I can only know my own heart. But that's still an astonishing number regardless. We seek the lost not just to add to our numbers, but to bring them to the point where they realize their own sins and seek reconciliation with God, just like what happened to us. I can fairly confidently say that no one listening here lived in a bubble with no contact with the outside world and thus had never heard of God and Jesus before they came to faith. And it was like, man, oh, Jesus should be a thing. I believe in Jesus. Like, that's not how the world works at all. Something had to be done to introduce the idea and concepts to us, whether that was you had someone talking to you and they evangelized to you. Uh, you had like a cultural understandings of other religions and you checked out Christianity or you read the Bible to see what the fuss was all about. Something there had to be an action step there to introduce the idea to you is my point and is part of Jesus's point here. The further point being this work that had to be done to introduce you and I to the gospel, God expects us all to witness and help others see their need for Jesus. But like I said earlier, it's not the only thing he's expecting out of us in this per, uh, parable in particular. Look, I said it earlier, but you all and I, we all have something we bring to the table if we are his. No matter how small or seemingly insignificant, like uh, I heard someone the other day complaining about uh, their ability to organize things. And I was like, are you serious? I wish I had that. I I'm a terrible organizer when it comes to anything that isn't writing the plot of a book. Uh, if you saw my room right now in complete disarray, it would put my mother to shame. It's a wonder she hasn't murdered me from afar. I don't have that power. I don't have the ability to say, hey, guys, we need to be here at this time and do this thing and then be happy when not everyone shows up. That's not me. Other people, they can roll with the punches. They can do that. There is something you bring to the table. That organization mean things, means things run more smoothly. If you're really good at evangelizing, well, guess what? You're good at talking to people who may not have heard Jesus without you. If you're good at just serving, like serving is one of those things in various areas that don't get enough credit. We need to praise them more, not be, to lift up their egos, but to let them know they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're doing something wondrous to help people. And that is a good and righteous thing. You all, we all have something we bring to the table. We have these abilities and powers that we can use for the benefit of others. Find out what that is and use it for the kingdom. This is just one way we can increase the gift that we first received. God gave us that mina. He said, Christian, your spiritual gifts are teaching and mercy. Mercy sounds like, well, shouldn't we all be doing that? 
Well, it's a little more involved than that initial idea of, yes, we should all be merciful. But some people, like, I don't know why God chose me, but apparently that's what it is, have gift, been gifted with mercy to see things and see people in a way that other people just can't, or it doesn't come to them as readily. I can talk to someone and see where they're coming from a lot more easily than someone else and give mercy for why they weren't able to do something when they needed to, or why something happened a certain way. And they think that they're less than, they think that they're worthless, worthless because they couldn't do something. And I can then extend that mercy to them. And it's something that uh, apparently, I mean, just one of my gifts and I'm very grateful for it. It's something very humbling gift because you think, oh, well, why didn't I get, you know, evangelizing or uh, something else like that? It's like, no, I gave you this, use it wisely. So we all need to find out what those gifts are. Conversely here, we see the final person who simply buried their gifts and talents inside that handkerchief, fearing what would happen if they somehow lost them or squandered them. Look, this is a natural fear. It's okay to be afraid to an extent. God has given me so much. What if I screw up? What if I'm not good enough? It's okay if you start there. Don't remain there. Like I said, it's a natural fear, but it is never one we should remain in. God never decided to make someone a static Christian. But as of you not very into books and like you talk about static characters, dynamic characters. A static character is someone who stays the same at you know, the start of the story and they're the exact same way at the end of the story. That's just how it works. A dynamic character is someone who they start here. Um, first one that popped in mind, Han Solo. Han Solo is a rogue. He's a smuggler. Uh, he's in it for the money. He's not doing this for your uh, revolution, sweetheart, or princess, or however the heck he says it. But at the end of the first movie in Star Wars, a new hope. He comes back through no for no gain of his own to help Luke in the Death Star trench run and saves the rebellion. That is a dynamic character. Uh, a static character in some regards. I'm trying to think of an example uh, off goodness gracious, the uh, the top of my head. Who would be a great person to use for this illustration? Uh, uh, you know what? Screw it. Uh, Josh, you can just cut all that out. Yeah, um, so I, I just couldn't think of someone off the top of my head. So I apologize to everyone for that. And hopefully all that got edited out. So that's where I'm at now. So the purpose being and all that is like you don't want to remain a, a static person, someone who is the same they were at the beginning of coming to faith. Zacchaeus is not a static character. This man is dynamic. He comes out in faith. And he does all these things for the good of others. Okay, well, let's use Ahab as an example of a static character. Uh, for those of you who know your biblical history, King Ahab was king of Israel back in the day. And he starts off as being against God and not wanting to do anything, not worshiping God, not following his commands, even though he's seen time and time again, God's power is better than Baal. Like he remains static in that sense of he never changes his morals. He never changes who he is as a person. He remains the same evil king he was at the start of his reign and at the end of his reign. There's a good static character for you we get from scripture. You and I, we are not called to be static Christians. We are called to be dynamic Christians. There's no such thing as a static Christian who is doing their job. That doesn't exist. The Christian exists to be 
dynamic, and to cause change in the world around them. Do not be led astray by fear or lack of confidence in your abilities. You're going to screw up and follow what God has commanded you to do, and that's okay. Learn from it and go and make disciples. Last but not least, uh, this is far more condemning of the Jewish people who refused to believe in the truth of who Jesus was. We've covered before how this was something Jesus knew would happen, yet fought against it anyways, so that when their time before God came, they could not say that they had never heard the truth and try to use that as an excuse to avoid condemnation. There is no excuse before God for not following after him, and he is righteous to judge those who do not believe in his name. He takes no pleasure in this, but if he is who he says he is, then he must punish sin and sinners. And that's why it's brought up here at the very end, like these enemies of mine who did not want me and to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. God takes no pleasure in that, but he is justice. And that's what has to happen when there is no repentance. 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain, at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Surprise that work. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And we're, get, we're getting there, people. This all the way to the cross. That's why Jesus has come here, starting in humbleness. This triumphant coming of Jesus to Jerusalem, not being led by an army or extravagant means or on a horse, even just a horse, but in humbleness led by a simple cult. This is not what he deserves, but to show us who he truly is, Jesus allowed himself to be given less than what he deserved to, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, less than what he deserves uh, for the sake of those who would follow after him. Let's also see here. Remember this crowd of people cheering his name and praising him for being blessed by God, because some of them will be singing a different tune in a less than a couple of days. The wishy-washy follower is worthless to the cause. This is, would be some of the lukewarm Christians, uh, or maybe not even Christians to begin with, uh, that Jesus was talking about in Revelation. And they were Chances are some of them were never a part of the flock to begin with. They are peer, excuse me, there are people within our churches who come every week and may even be part of the leadership, but they have no true relationship with God. We need to be wary of this without throwing around baseless accusations because the church will be stronger if we're able to weed them out correctly in accordance to his will, not ours. Don't start throwing out accusations because you simply see someone doing something and you go, well, I don't know about that. Back it up with evidence. Don't cause problems for the sake of causing problems. That's not good. It helps exactly no one. Not, we also don't send these people out, not because we don't want them to ever repent of their sins and you know see their need for God, 
but because they will always do more harm than good without a full relationship with Jesus. There should never be someone on the deacons or uh, a missionary or what have you who says they know Jesus, but they don't. That person has no place in a leadership position. That person always has a place in a church, always should be allowed to come in if they are seeking to learn more about God and to repent of their sins. But they are never to be in leadership. Because why would you ever want someone not qualified to lead? Why would I ever go to my mechanic and say, look, uh, man, my plumbing's all messed up. Or I go to my plumber and say, man, you should see the inside of my car. It's like, that's not why I go to them. They're not qualified for the same things. Those are two very different things. We should do the same in our churches. We go to qualified leadership for answers because they're supposed to be good at their jobs. If they're not, they're not worthy of being there. We get to verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem has been the chosen capital city of Israel and Judah for a little over a thousand years at this point in time. Like uh, David sets himself up a little before 1000 BC. I forget my exact history right now. I apologize. And just about 40 years from this point in time, this being about 33 AD, Jerusalem would fall and Israel would be scattered to the ends of the earth. Israel, the people, not just the nation. This is appalling. And once again, God is going to take no pleasure in allowing this to happen. So Jesus right now is weeping openly for his lost people. And he wishes, he wants and desires something better for them. But he doesn't take their control away from them for their own good by forcing them to follow after him. He doesn't do that. That's not how God works. Surely we would think, well, it'd be better if you mind controlled them and forced them. If this is really the righteous thing to do is to follow after you. It's like, no, God respects our free will. God respected Pharaoh's free will up to the point where Pharaoh was never going to do anything else. So God confirmed his decision and had him uh, deny Moses and continue hardening his own heart. It's the same way with other people. God is confirming the choices they made to not follow after him. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. That's scripture. That's truth. But we see here, this God's heart is standing over the lost and weeping openly for them. Because Jerusalem, the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD is not going to be fun. You know, this, that thing that uh, ancient wars were known for, that being fun? Yeah, no, uh, that's never been a thing. And this would be no different. Like people are going to be slaughtered in the street, children killed by soldiers, women assaulted, taken away, all of them as slaves and forced in other parts of the Roman Empire to be seen as these lesser people who were openly rebelled against the emperor. We should feel the same anguish, not only for these people, but those around us right now who don't know him. And we need to seek after them. Jesus sought after these people. And knowing the Pharisees would never come to faith, he still spoke to them. Another thing we see here is that this is a prophecy. 
Jesus is prophesying about the end of the city of Jerusalem about a little less than 40 years from where he is in history. So about 37-ish. And this right here, I mentioned a couple episodes ago, uh, one of my personal conspiracy theories for why people don't want to date the Gospels before 70 AD. Well, this is why. This is why I think that is. I think some members, some members of the non-believing crowd of historians and archaeologists don't want any gospel to be written before this date is because if they were, then what Jesus says here is a prophecy and marks him as a prophet. It shows a power over nature that rationality, logic, and science cannot explain as we are capable of doing yet. Never knock science. Never knock people's reasoning. Uh, it may be possible one day we can actually like scientifically prove how someone could be a prophet. I'd be all for that. But as it stands now, they can't. And so that messes with their worldview where God is not in control. God is not who he says he is. Jesus was just a man. And they can't have this thing because a prophet is weird. It is out of the system. It cannot be true because it does not match and align with what they want the world to be like. If the Gospels are written after the fall of Jerusalem, well, then it's just people using it as propaganda to make it look like Jesus predicted this happening. Say, oh, well, Jesus totally said that uh, you know, before that because I said it. I wrote it down. That's what the argument they'll use against it. Look, the Bible is full of prophecies that cannot be disdained by academia or anyone else because they were always made with plenty of time before the events of the prophecy occurred. Jesus is a prophet. He predicted not only his own death, but also the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem and the temple we see in other passages. And there's no way around that. Jesus is who he said he was. We also see here, as we move forward to 45 through 48, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Here we go. Some people's favorite part. Uh, Jesus righteously gets angry and then does something about it. He goes into the temple, this place devoted to God, this place devoted to the person, the one being in all of creation who has always looked after the Jewish people. And he sees people in there price gouging. He sees people in there screwing over the lost, screwing over those who cannot afford things. And say, like, oh, well, I've got a better deal for you if you just buy uh, this pigeon or dove or I uh, forget the uh, sacrificial animal in question. Uh, but Oh, if you just do this instead, like uh, it's only going to cost you this many wages, has no place in the church at all. Jesus, at some of the churches I see around here, I mean, your prosperity gospel being like the most obvious uh, person right here you're going to hate and righteously be angry at. Did you know it's okay to hate? It's okay to hate if your mind is in the right spot and you are hating evil. That is evil to convince people, if you just send me money, oh, if you just do this and you worship God, then all the gifts are going to be raining down on you. You're going to have a house, a wife and kids and all this wonderful stuff. You can have a, a husband who loves you. Uh, you're going to have children who respect you and like nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. And that has nothing to do with the gospel. It is them taking advantage of people so they can make a quick buck. So they can use religion to their own ends. That's exactly what's happening here. You don't think some of the Pharisees were getting a good bit of a kickback from this? 
I'd be a fool to think otherwise. But let's also see how Jesus used that anger and hatred here. He directed it where it was supposed to be directed at. Look, there is plenty about being in this world that gets me angry, but is all of it righteous? Not always. Like, I can't stand the fact that human trafficking still exists. That's something to get righteously angry about. I can't stand the fact that there are civil wars and wars and genocides and people being taken away from their parents, women and men being assaulted and forced to endure terrible, horrible ordeals. Like, I hate that. I want something to be done about it. That is where anger should be. But when I then take that anger out on someone who doesn't deserve it, or I use my own version of justice and vengeance instead of God's, I have misapplied that anger. We need to have an awareness of ourselves first. What am I capable of? Am I in the right to be angry about this thing? This awareness of ourselves and the truth of the matter? Like, am I right to be angry about this or did I misunderstand the situation? All of those things, the righteousness, this awareness of ourselves and the truth before we go out to solve any problem we see around us. Now, obviously, Jesus is a perfect being. He can do no wrong. He's always going to act righteously. We, however, need to be more careful and shrewd about how we handle this. Get angry. I I'm rallying you all. Get angry when sin is harming the world and people around us. We need to be angry. That should not happen. That is exactly running counter to the will of God to what God desires from the world. He did not create this world for it to be uh, devolved into this cesspool of sin and anguish. That's what it became as a result of sin and a result of a punishment. Doesn't mean he wants it that way. Doesn't mean he wants to keep it that way. That's why Jesus is coming back, by the way. It is righteous to be angry at injustice, crime, and sin. It is not righteous to then speak ill of these people because guess what? They're still human beings created in the image of God and they need Jesus just as much as you and I, to harm them unjustly. No, go, no going to punish her on anyone here. I, I'm sure outside of Spider-Man, Frank's probably the person I mentioned the most on this podcast. Uh, or anything else. Like, if you're using your anger incorrectly, you are being bad at your job. I am being bad at my job to love others. Part of loving others is hating sin. Part of loving others is hating when people get hurt and wanting to do something about it. Focus that anger and hatred positively to stop whatever ills surround us or happen across the globe. There are plenty of organizations out there that need help. Plenty of people out there who are looking after children in refugee camps, who are looking after victims of assault, who are looking uh, for people at, and finding ways of getting them out of sex trafficking. Look them up. Find them. I mean, you know, Compassion International is a, a very fine choice for like looking after children. But that's not just one place. Look these places up, verify them to make sure they're doing what they say they're doing, then help out as best you can. Or get involved yourself. There are plenty of good causes out there that could use more people to use that redirected anger and hatred to be used as a positive force in this world. Figure out what that is and seek after it. We also see here the Pharisees and the Sadducees had allowed the temple to be reduced to a laughingstock of what it was supposed to stand for. This angered Jesus, and he did something about it. God is never meant to be mocked, slandered, or misrepresented. His name is meant to be kept holy. There's a reason it's one of the Ten Commandments. His places of worship are to be holy and kept holy by those who maintain them. 
Any church that doesn't do this is worthy of his just wrath. I mean, you go to your more obvious choices. You've got your Westboro Baptist Church that say they're the only people who get it. And the whole, and I apologize for using this word, but for the sake of it, like, uh, you know, God hates fags and uh, homosexuality is a sin. What? Yeah, God hates sin. We've already established that. He doesn't hate the people. He doesn't want them dead. He doesn't want them to never know who he is. If we take that approach and when do we stay that in front of the pulpit, in front of a large audience to protest at places and people go, oh, this pride parade is happening right here. Well, God hates you all and he wants you dead. Like that is misdirected anger brought out to the point where, oh, well, if I yell loudly about these people, no one's going to see what I'm doing that they can't see, that I'm doing sinning on the side because their sin is more obvious than mine. That church is no church. Any church that spouts the same says, oh, if you vote, if you vote Republican, if you vote Democrat, if you, uh, if you support anyone, uh, if you support the ability to care for people under a, a hideous regime, like, oh, man, they're serving in this army and I hate them versus like those are men and women being led astray by people in power. And God commands me to love them too. Just as he commands me to love the people in power that hate Jesus, that hate his words, that would never once follow him in their lives. We should be angry and upset with what happens in Ukraine. We should not then direct that hatred towards the people running it and say, I want you dead. I want you gone. We should be praying for them to see truth so that hopefully someone there can turn things around and this madness can stop. The Pharisees would not do this. Any church that misrepresents the word of God would not do this because they have their own convictions and their convictions have led them to the wrong answer. This whole thing applies to any person who claims Christ. And look, we are representatives of the Trinity in this world. And what we do and say reflects on them to those around us. Don't make things worse by being a poor representative, a poor ambassador. But know that there is always grace and forgiveness for when we do screw up a sin. Because guess what? It's going to happen. We're going to say something we shouldn't have. We're going to have a very wrong political take. We're going to have a very wrong take on relations between different people of different races and cultures. And that doesn't mean, well, well game over. I guess uh, no one can ever forgive me. It's like, no, learn from it. Get better. Ask forgiveness when we sin, when we say the false things we know we should not say. And if you're in a church right now, well, that's all you're hearing. If there's nothing that can be done to reform that church, leave. Find somewhere where God is going to mold you and the person he wants you to be, because clearly that's not the best spot for you. Also note here at the very end, the fear of the Jewish leaders, because they saw their reign coming to an end. And rather than celebrating like they should, since like we've established, no one else should know more than them that Jesus is who he says he is. Because they should be celebrating the return and the coming of the true king of Israel. Don't fear others no longer listening to you as a mentor or a leader if they're being taught by someone who serves the same God. I have seen so many people get upset when someone they were mentoring starts listening to someone else. Why? Well, because they're not listening to me anymore. They're not listening to you anymore. That's missing the point. I am no one. Any mentor is no one. Now why? Because the only reason we're someone is because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. 
I am not more special than you. You are not more special than me. If I am mentoring someone and they start listening to someone else who is also saying some of the same things I'm doing, if they're living things correctly, but they're saying it in a different way that applies to that person more, good. They can learn better from them than they can from me. That should not be a cut to my ego that they're not listening to me anymore. They're not listening to you anymore. Be better. As for those of us who lead in various regards in our lives, uh, whether that be as like small group or a head of a church or a entire missionary board or like you have children, you have a wife, a husband and kids like, look, use that leadership wisely, but don't let it affect you when they start listening to someone else. And, you know, in your heart of hearts, that person is someone they should be listening to. We're better than that. We're worth more than that. Guys, thank you again for listening to this episode. Uh, let nothing move you. Please, if you have a chance, just leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice to help us boost us wherever we are that you see us. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwriterskill.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're going to be in Matthew North, excuse me, Matthews, North Carolina on July 15th, I'll be there along with my fellow Systematic Ecology hosts. And we're going to be enjoying this uh, super fun, summer fun, slime time event. And we'll be having this whole one-day adult VBS extravaganza from 9.30 a.m. to 10 p.m. where you can see us live record some episodes. I'm going to be leading one on demons in fiction and how we should be handling that. Uh, we're going to have this uh, very fun, geeky trivia competition. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. Contact me at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to continue to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.